Well, recently I began reading a book by a historian named John Keegan, and uh, he, he, he writes actually exclusively about war history, and uh, it, the book was recommended, so I picked it up, and the book I'm reading is a book called The Mask of Command, and, and it's a book in which he looks at different commanders, different generals all throughout history, and what we can learn from them. And the first commander he looks at is Alexander the Great. Most of you know who that is, that, that great king who, who was sort of king over much of the known world, right, uh, in 300 B.C. And uh, a few things I learned is I, I learned that he would always start battles at first light. And the reason he would do that is because he didn't want fear and anxiety to build too much in his soldiers. So at first light, they would attack. I also learned that he would always ride alongside of his troops. He would never ask of a soldier to make a sacrifice that he wasn't willing to make himself. It's a pretty good leadership lesson. But honestly, one of the most intriguing things, to me at least, was a priority he had in each and every battle. So before he would go against a battle, he had one singular priority. He would look to find their strongest point. The, the strongest point in, a, in the line, in the enemy line, he would find that strong point because having found it, he would then attack that strong point. And he did this for a couple reasons. One being that strong point often is where you'd find the weakest and the most cowardly soldiers. But then also, if you could break through that strong point, well, you would break the will of the enemy and you would win the day. That was Alexander the Great's kind of uh, military priority. It was of first importance to him. Find the strong point in the enemy and then attack. But, but he's not the only one that has priorities, right? I mean, we all have priorities. Uh, my first priority when I wake up in the morning, coffee. Right? I can't even walk straight until I have that cup of coffee, right? Amen. Right? We, we actually, in some sense, as Americans, dedicate an entire month to priorities, right? Or, or maybe reprioritizing. We call them New Year's resolutions. This morning, I want to talk to you about priorities. I want to think through our priorities. I want to think through kind of all of our priorities. And as Christians, I want to think through what should our top priority be in life? Which in many ways is exactly what chapter 3 of the book of, uh, of Ezra is all about. It's all about priorities and what the priority of a Christian church and a Christian should be. Now, last Sunday, we began our study in the book of Ezra. Now, if you haven't turned to Ezra chapter 3, we're going we're gonna to be there. You, you'll be helped. Um, I'm going to reference it many, many times. I'm going to read sections of it. So, so go to Ezra. It's about a third of the way through your Bible. Um, it's past uh, Second Chronicles. And as you go there, just sort of to set the stage, let me remind us, like I did last week, that, that King Cyrus of Persia is now the, the, the sort of super king of the superpower. And he has just announced that Israel can go back. 
They've been in exile for 70 years, and now, as a result of, of, of kind of Persia's foreign policy, they allow Israel to go back to resettle, to rebuild. And that's where we find them in chapter 3. After 70 years of exile, they're back in Jerusalem rebuilding. And so you might be wondering, and I just want you to kind of mull over this, what's their first priority, right? They get into the land, they get into Jerusalem, God's people are finally backed after 70 years, what should be their priority? Well, as you kind of keep that in the back of your mind, as you kind of think through, if you are one of the leaders or if you are part of that group, what your priority might be, what, what I want to do this morning is just to ask two questions. They're pretty basic questions. I want to ask two questions and then I'm going to answer them. The first question is, what is this priority that they have in chapter 3? And then second, I want to ask, what does this priority produce? So first, what is this priority? Look at verse 1. Verse 1 Phil read this earlier. I'm going to read it again. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one in Jerusalem. Now, why did they gather? Verse 2. They gathered to build the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it. The first thing, their first priority, the, the, the thing they tackled first, was the rebuilding of the altar. And then if you go down to verse 8 uh, through verse 10, you, you find that they laid the foundation of the temple. So first the altar and then the foundation of the temple. That was their priority. Now, just step back and, and think. In some ways, I don't think this makes sense. In some ways, I don't think this should be their first priority. To rebuild the altar in the temple? I mean, shouldn't they build homes? Shouldn't they cultivate the land so they can have food? Or maybe, shouldn't they be worried about protection? Isn't that the first thing they should be doing? I mean, that's sort of what got them in this mess in the first place. Shouldn't they be rebuilding the wall as first importance? And then you go to verse 3, and you find out that there is fear among them. And so in light of this fear, shouldn't they prioritize protection or provision? But they don't, do they? They don't prioritize protection. They don't prioritize provision. They prioritize, because I like alliteration, another P. Praise. Worship. That's their first priority. Because it's not just that they build an altar, right? It's not just that they pour the foundation and begin to build the temple, right? Verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6 make it really, really clear that having built the altar, now they begin to worship God at that altar, right? Verse 2 and 3, they offer burnt offerings. Verse 4, they kept the Feast of Booths and then offered daily burnt offerings. Verse 5, right, more offerings, free will offerings, more feasts. Verse 6, more offerings. 
of all of the necessary priorities that they had, first and foremost was the priority of worshiping God. They had been gone for years, and yet this is, cent- this is the central thing that they do. Their ultimate priority, the thing that made them them, was God. And so when they arrive, they tend to their relationship with God. They, they, they think through, how do we get back in right standing before God? Well, to do so, they needed to make sacrifices. They needed to you know, participate in the feasts. That's how they worked on their relationship with God. That's how they got in right standing with God. They made an altar. They made sacrifices. They tended to their relationship by hosting feasts. They wanted to make sure that their sins were dealt with. That was their priority. It should be our priority too, shouldn't it? It's not just them. I mean, a lot has changed between Ezra and now. We no longer worship around an altar or a temple. We don't make sacrifices. We don't need Levitical priests. And the reason, it's the Sunday school answer. The reason for that change is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice for sins. Jesus is the ultimate and final priest who mediates between us and God. Jesus is the true temple in whom we find our ultimate advocate. If you you remember when we finished the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, one of the major themes is that Jesus is better. He's best. Jesus is a better priest. He's a better advocate. He's a better temple. He's a better you know, mediator between us and God. He he is better. We no longer need to worship God as they worshiped God in the Old Testament. And and so though a lot has changed from Ezra to today, one thing hasn't changed. A priority. Maybe we could put it this way. It's, It's the priority. The priority of God. The most important priority, as we have breath in our lungs, like the last song said, the most important priority is to know God and to worship God and to seek to be in right standing before God. So so if you don't know this God, that is and ought to be your top priority. To be in right standing before with God. All of us are made in God's image. And what, one, of those, uh, what, one of the things that that means is that we were made to be in relationship with God. Maybe you've heard of sort of the, the, the old saying that, that we all have a God-shaped hole in us. Well, there's some truth to that. We can't be whole without a relationship with God. So, so how, do you, how can you fill this hole? Well, it can be filled as you repent of your sins and put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ and his once-for-all sacrifice for sins. That is the first and most important priority for us all, 
making sure we are in right standing before God. But it's not just for maybe the non-Christian or the seeker. It's for us all. All of us need to think through our priorities and ask the question, is God of first importance? Is knowing God, relating to God, worshiping God, enjoying God, is that the most important part about me? Because unfortunately, this priority, even in the best of intentions, it can be squeezed out, can't it? Right? There are so many things seeking to, to kind of vie for our time and our attention, things, things that rise to the surface as, that, that just shout for our attention, that even good things can sometimes push out the ultimate thing. All of us have priorities. I, I just wonder this morning, in the pecking order of all of your priorities, where does God fit in? How high is the priority of God in your life? When you have that free evening, that, that free Friday or Saturday, that free more morning or evening, is God a priority? The priority in Ezra, which is the same as it should be in our life, was to know God. And so maybe you're wondering, well, okay, but how is it that we can know this God? How is it that you can know if you're in right standing before God? How can you worship this God? Well, our text hints at how we can do this. Go to look at verse 2. Right, verse 2, they, they offered burnt offerings. And then there's a little phrase here, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Then go down to verse 4. And they kept the Feast of Booths as it is written. And burnt offerings according to the rule. And then if you go down to verse 10, they laid the foundation of the temple in accordance to the directions of David, king of Israel. Right? They, they, they worshipped in accordance with what was written. They worship in accordance to God's word. Even while in exile, even while they just got out of exile, their worship, their community was shaped by God's word. They built an altar. They then began to build the temple and they did these things. They prioritized these things because that's what God said to do. It was God's Word that was guiding them. God's Word has always guided God's people. Because just think about it. The basis of all relationships, all relationships, is communication. I'm seeing this recently because we made one of those really bad COVID decisions and got a dog. And I'm realizing that because I can't communicate with this dog, we don't have a very good relationship. Relationships are built on communicating. If you can't communicate, you can't have a relationship. Right? We know this on human levels, that, that if you want to have a, a good relationship, you need to know what another person likes and dislikes. You need to know how to communicate with them in order to really have a good and growing relationship. Well, the same is true of God. 
In order to know God, in order to have a relationship with God, you have to be able to communicate with God. He must communicate to us who he is, what he likes, what he dislikes. We can't worship God apart from God's word. One of the first things we learn in God's Word, if you go back to Genesis 1, verse 3, one of the first kind of things, characteristics we learn about God is that God speaks. God is a talking God. God speaks. He self-discloses who He is because He wants to have a relationship with Him, which if you just step back, is utterly astonishing. God communicates. He self-discloses who he is. Not all of who he is, but partially who he is in order to have a relationship with us. This is how we know God. It's through his word. When you open up the pages of this book, your Bible, you're opening up a window into heaven. You're opening up... Well, it's... The best way I can describe it, it's like Narnia, Right? Right? Lucy goes into the wardrobe, and then she encounters Aslan. That's what the Bible is. The Bible isn't a picture on a frame. It's more like a window. It's more like a wardrobe where you go in there, and you get to experience and understand life. And then you come back, and it frames all of our encounters. That's God's Word. God's Word is a window into heaven. Every time you open up your word, God's Word, He's speaking to us. You're reading about God and his interaction in human history. You're reading about who God is, what he likes, what he dislikes, what his expectations are. You're learning what his priority is. Knowing God is hopeless if he doesn't communicate. If God is silent, we can't have a relationship with him. But God is not silent. He talks, he speaks, he communicates to us such that we can have a relationship with him. So, so if you want to have a relationship with God, you've got to hear his voice. This is why we gather every Sunday, to hear his voice. This is why we gather in Bible studies, to hear his voice, to know this God. This is why we, we you know, encourage one-on-one relationships and small groups. All of those are means in which we can grow in hearing God's voice, growing in the knowledge of who God is, that we might cultivate our relationship with Him. And notice what happens also when we prioritize this. When, when individuals come together and they prioritize knowing God, something happens. Go back to verse 1. In verse 1, they gather around this priority of knowing God, worshiping God, and they do so as one man. In other words, as they do this, they are unified. Now, priorities always unify, right? Any priority, if you get enough people buying into a priority, whatever it is, it unifies them. But know this. The unity of God's people, it's always been God. That's what creates our unity. That is the glue in our unity. It's God. Unity is theocentric. If the church were a solar system, what binds each planet together 
is that it's in relationship to the sun. S-O-N. Or maybe let me, let's just think of maybe a biblical example of how this works itself out. J- just think of Rahab in the book of Joshua. Right? Rahab's living in the red light district in Jericho. And here come two spies. They have nothing in common, really. And yet they're unified. Why? Because she yokes her destiny to their destiny. She yokes her faith to the same God that these two spies were yoking their faith. They didn't look the same. They didn't like the same. They didn't have the same morality. They didn't have the same testimony. And yet they had, at that moment, they both were trusting in the same God. That's what created their unity. That's what God's Word does. That's what God's Word always does. It helps us know God and worship God, and then having done that, it binds us together as individuals. You could put it negatively this way. Where you find disunity, you always find God and His Word not being prioritized. And the opposite is true as well. Where unity is profoundly experienced, you'll find God at the center of it. God's people always are called back by God Himself to prioritize Him as first in their life. That's what we have in chapter 3. But now, so the, so the first question what is this priority? Well, it's, it's God. It's the worship of God. It's knowing God. It's being in right standing before God. And now second, the second question I want to ask and then answer is, what does this priority produce? Let, let me read starting in verse 10 down to the end of the chapter. Verse 10. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and the Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen this first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish this, the sound of the joyful Shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard from far away. So, so, so the people gather, right? The altar is remade, the temple's foundation is laid, and they, and they begin to praise the Lord, right? They worship God. The, the, the worship team comes out. They, they even got symbols here, right? right? They're clapping. They're, they might be swaying a little bit. Might even be dancing, right? That they're having a good time. They're praising God. They've been ex- in exile for 70 years. And so they gather around and praising God for his love endures forever and ever and ever and ever. It's a fairy tale ending, right? The curtain should close. This should be the end of the book of Ezra, right? All is well. 
The exile is over. They're in the land. The temple is beginning to be rebuilt. Not so fast. You you must have noticed that it wasn't just praise and joy that the people of God were singing and shouting. They were also crying. They were also weeping. They were lamenting. Some had their heads tilted up towards the heaven, others down in sadness and discouragement. And the text tells us why, doesn't it? The text tells us the reason. Evidently, uh, some remembered the old temple, the grandeur of it, the immensity of it, all the work that went into building it. And they saw this altar and this foundation and they were discouraged because they were contrasting it with the former glory of the temple. Right? Their crying was a mixture of nostalgia and pessimism. I mean, there was so much to rebuild. And so for some, it didn't feel like a time to praise. It felt like a time to lament and remember the good old days. Right? This is quite the scene when you just really think about it. Right? You've got younger folks who are excited. Right, They've got that youthful zeal that the youth usually have. They're excited. They're like, we're back. God's got good things ahead of us. And they're shouting to God. But then the older people, the, the people who remember, are like, oh, I remember what it was like and it was nothing like this. And so uh, there is a mixture of joy and sadness, uh-uh, right? That, that's, that's the human condition. Praise and lament simultaneously in the human heart. And the chapter ends with the cries and the shouts of joy kind of mixed together, and it's so loud that you could, be, you could hear it from you know, miles and miles away. Now, at this exact moment, at the same moment, if you flip your Bibles, and you, you don't have to, I'm, I'm going to read a, a section, but um, just, just reference it. If you keep flipping, you flip to a prophet named Zechariah, who was a prophet during this time. He and Haggai. And they prophesied during this time. And Zechariah, in chapter 3, or in chapter 4, excuse me, he he speaks specifically to this lament attitude, this crying. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. Zechariah says, This is the word of the Lord to Jerubbabel, the leader that we read in, in chapter 3. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountains? Before Jerubbabel, you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then verse 10. For whoever despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Zechariah is prophetically reminding God's people that God is doing something. He's doing something small, but it's going to lead to something great. God's beginning his work, and it looks small, it looks unfinished, it looks ordinary, but it's going to be great. And the people should not despise and be discouraged 
and lament for too long because God is doing something. Now, this, back to Ezra 3, this was a small thing. Israel was small. At that moment, there were around 4,000 people. They've returned to nothing, right? Jerusalem is in ruins. And they're just starting to rebuild. They're starting to rebuild the temple and rebuild their kingdom. It's pretty small from their perspective, isn't it? It's a pretty humble beginning. And it was easy for them to despise this seemingly small beginning. And yet, small things, small beginnings can turn into big ends. Just think of the smallness of a baby born in Bethlehem. Just think of the smallness of a bit, that baby who grows up, not in royalty, but in ordinary Nazareth. Just think of, of this boy who turns when he's 30 and he starts doing ministry, Jesus. Think of the smallness of his ministry. Think of the smallness of his disciples, fishermen. Think of the smallness of his preaching and his teaching message about a kingdom all the while he himself had nowhere to lay his head. Think of the smallness of Jesus' message that gets him imprisoned and then killed. Jesus was a small thing, wasn't he? Just another small, crucified rebel. And yet that small thing is why each and every one of us are here today. It's for that very small reason. A humble beginning announced by a humble king who talked about his heavenly kingdom that was to come. Though it seems small, the smallness of Jesus' ministry turned into his glory and greatness. Don't despise the small things. Don't be discouraged by humble beginnings. Take heart. In Ezra's day, some people shouted with joy. Others cried in lament. They were lamenting the smallness of the moment. But the message then is the message for us this morning. It's the same message that Zechariah gives us as well. And it's the same message that ultimately finds its fulfillment in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't despise the small things. Don't be discouraged by the small things, by the ordinary things, by the mundane things. We ought to rejoice. God works in the small things. God works by small things. God's always worked through small things. And I know we can be discouraged by small things. Because often those small things, we don't see the, the, the fruit. We, we don't see it from heaven's perspective. And so we can easily be discouraged. But let me just say by way of application, don't, don't be discouraged by your prayer life if you're not seeing God answer your prayers. Don't, don't, don't be discouraged or despise the ministry of prayer even when you're not feeling or experiencing or seeing the fruit of those prayers. The smallness of your prayer will reap a harvest. Now, it might not be what you think it might be, but God is doing something with your prayers and the smallness of your prayers. 
don't, don't be discouraged by the smallness of your ministry, whatever that is, whatever your role is, however you're serving, don't be discouraged or despise the smallness of your role. Don't be discouraged by the smallness of your calling, of changing diapers, picking up Legos, filling out that report time and time again, data entry, those just mundane things that just don't feel like they matter in eternity. Don't be discouraged. Those small things bring glory to God. Don't be despised by, 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 the, by the smallness of giving someone forgiveness. It might seem small to, to say, well, I forgive you, or, reversely, will you forgive me? That, that might be a small thing, but don't be discouraged. That is a powerful thing. Don't despise or be discouraged by the smallness of friendship, the power of going on a walk. Don't, don't be discouraged by just playing basketball with some friends. You can bring glory to God in that. Don't despise the smallness of, of honoring your parents. Just, just honoring, respecting your parents. That might be a small thing, but that's demonstrating that, that, that you believe that there is a, an authority and it's not you. That's a small thing, but it is, in eternity's light, a big thing, a grand thing. Parents, don't, don't despise the everyday parenting struggles. Just saying, I love you, I'm proud of you, a hug, when you accumulate those small things, they accomplish great things, don't they? I mean, we, we could go on, can't we? We could list time, all the small things we do on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, those small things that we just discount, but those small things in the hand of God are powerful things. Don't despise the day of small things. Instead, rejoice. God is, to quote, C.S. Lewis again in Narnia, God is on the move. And I'll be honest, I don't know exactly what God is doing, right? I, I don't know exactly what God is doing in this season. It just, it just, I don't know. But, but I do know this. I don't know what God is doing specifically, but I do know what God is doing in general. I know where he's taking his people. I know where the ship is headed. I know who wins and I know who loses. I know that his kingdom will come. I know that Jesus will return, and he will return on, on a day that might not look like a special day. It'll probably be an ordinary day, a mundane day, a small day, a day when we least expect it. And you all know that too. You all know where this ship is headed. We've all yoked our faith and belief and trust in this God. And until that day, let us, let us be doing the very things that God's people have always done, which is prioritizing God as first in our life, worshiping Him privately and collectively.
Let's pray. Lord, you are good. Your steadfast love endures forever. Lord, we confess that, that so often, we, you know, you get squeezed out of our life. We, we so desperately want to prioritize you. We want you to be first in our life, and yet time and time again, we fail. And so, Lord, we're thankful that your grace is new every morning. And every morning is a new day that we can, that we can proclaim our conviction to put you first in our lives. Lord, Lord, may you be first in our, in our marriages, first in our work, first in our parenting, first in our week. Lord, may, may we prioritize you in the worship of you and knowing you that we can image you, Lord. Lord, we thank you for your grace and mercy, and we pray all this in your Son's name. Amen.